This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hey, I'm Brent Butterworth. I'm the visionary writer behind the Soundstage Solo website. Hi, I'm Dennis Berger. I'm the Grand Poobah of Soundstage Access. Uh, so you outrank me, right? No, I don't outrank you. You're Grand Poobah, and I'm just a visionary. Oh, well, I gotta, I gotta so, come up with something lower than Grand okay. Poobah. I'll have to <laughs> defer to you on every topic we discuss. So um, anyway, we're, we're here. We're part of the Soundstage network soundstage.com and you can go look at nine different sites all of which have to do with specific parts of audio dennis covers uh what do you cover like home theater stuff no no affordable high high value audio is the affordable, way I describe it. affordable yeah. high value audio right and yeah. i cover headphones yeah uh and we occasionally branch out into other topics but we're going to be discussing a wide range of audio topics here today what are we talking about so first topic we're going to discuss is uh from a review that i read in Positive Feedback, which is positive-feedback.com. And this is a review of a new device that grounds your loudspeakers. And it's it's from Phonoacoustica, and it claims to remove, uh, you know, radio frequency pollution from your loudspeakers and to ground them better and to do some other stuff. So we're going to be digging into that, and we're going to be digging into how radio frequencies you know, energy can affect your, uh, your audio. And, you know, there's radio frequency energy buzzing all around us right now, Dennis. It's everywhere. Yeah. There's more of, there's more of it every, every minute somebody buys a new cell phone or they build a new cell tower or somebody gets a new Wi-Fi router or they get a Bluetooth speaker and there's just so much RF pollution. And what are we going to do about it? Oh, we will find out. We will learn. I think also I want to dig into this new subwoofer that Wilson Audio has. It's called the Wilson Audio Loki subwoofer. Um, and Darko Audio has um, a piece about it. But there's also been a little bit of, I would say, controversy surrounding the subwoofer. So we're going to dig into that and uh, and figure out what it means. And what are we talking about last, Brent? So our last topic is, you know, I've chosen to to discuss a an article you wrote <gasps> for Soundstage Access mm-hmm. that's um, called How Much Difference Do DACs Really Make? And it really discusses uh, the digital to analog converter, or DAC, and how much of a difference these devices make in your audio system. There's a lot of them out there at prices going up to tens of thousands of dollars and as low as, you know, I don't know, $10 or mm-hmm. something. And, and we are going to dig into depth. And, you know, some other writers are chiming in too, and we're going to hear what they have to say as well. Very cool. Well, let's do this RF thing first, because I think this is going to be a pretty big conversation. So t- talk to me about this review that you read and, and and what's going on here. Okay. I have some things to say about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this perception. I mean, granted, yeah, we do have, we all have Wi-Fi routers now and there's cell phone signals all over the place. And so there's a lot more radio frequency stuff going on than there was before. And so this has inspired some in the audio industry to start worrying what affects radio frequencies, you know, all this radio frequency energy might be having on our audio gear. Now, radio frequency energy is, you know, stuff that's uh, any electromagnetic energy that 
that radiates is radio frequency. And it can be something as simple as electricity and a wire or even going up to light waves. It's all pretty much the same thing. You know, when you have it oscillating at some frequency, it radiates energy. Okay. And so like with a radio antenna, you hook an amplifier up to it and you blast the the electrical signal up into there and the antenna radiates the energy out at, you know, uh, uh, 88.1 megahertz if you're listening to your local uh, NPR station, maybe, or jazz station. Mm-hmm. But radio frequency is, I actually looked this up and, and you know, things can radiate as low as something like, you know, three kilohertz. But generally we think of radio frequency energy as being about a hundred kilohertz and more, you know, AM radio starts at 540 kilohertz, for example. And your, your Wi-Fi router runs at either 2.4 or five gigahertz and Bluetooth runs at 2.4 gigahertz. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, TV runs from, uh, what, like in the, in the 50, uh, megahertz range on up to i can't remember but anyway um so there's all this rf energy and people are concerned that it might be polluting our audio products so in positive feedback there's a review of the phono acoustica compass speaker grounding system now have you ever seen a speaker grounding system before dennis the only speaker grounding system i've ever heard of is called an amplifier i guess <laughs> i just yeah well <laughs> that's, that's a point. really really that's a point we might want to address so i've been to audio shows literally from let's say shanghai to san francisco to new york to warsaw let's take that path right so i've been to a zillion audio shows all over the place and i can't ever remember seeing a speaker grounding system so there's this speaker grounding system it's five thousand seven hundred it's about a foot long or 14 inches long or something. And it's got a couple little binding posts on it. And so the idea is that your speakers should be grounded because there's all this RF and the RF can somehow mess up your speakers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you connect one wire from your negative terminal on your speaker to this little box and then you connect another wire from your other speaker onto this little box. And this little box has some kind of proprietary mineral compound that uh, somehow does an extra special job of grounding and removing RF pollution and all that kind of thing. And uh, you can use any speaker cables as long as they're high quality, but they sell speaker cables to go with it that are like each one of them is like uh, $1,300 or something like that for a two-meter version. Mm-hmm. So you're getting into about $8,000 for this rig. Um, so I wanted to talk though about, you know, I, and I started to dig more into this and I started to find more and more mention on, on high-end audio publications, uh, Audiophilia, Hi-Fi Pig, uh, you know, I read a whole lot of these things. And there's kind of a growing interest in sort of preventing RF pollution from messing up your audio gear. And so I kind of wanted to look at it from a technical standpoint. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, here's my question for you, or here's my question for re- really everybody. What would you think if I said, um, I have a specially treated Motley Crue bumper sticker, and you can buy two of these, and you can slap them on the back of your speaker, and it transforms the sound? What would you think, Dennis? <laughs> oh, well, I would think you were messing with me. Okay, but but the thing is, here's the thing. You you don't realize it. <laughs> Let me tell you what you were thinking. Um, you don't maybe realize it, but you went through a thought process there. Mm. You know that a Motley Crue bumper sticker is a fraction of a millimeter thick, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know it's just a, a piece of, you know, some kind of 
treated paper or something, right? With some, with a little bit of adhesive on the back, you know, that from a physical standpoint, your brain calculated like, okay, this thing's less than a millimeter thick and it's going on the back of the speaker. There's no way it could affect the sound. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you also calculated like, well, okay, it's a little piece of paper and it's got some adhesive on it. There's no way it can affect the physical characteristics of the speaker. As opposed to, if I said, here's a big giant chunk of foam that's like, half the size of a person that you can stick on the back of your speaker and transform the sound, then your brain would do a calculation and go like, oh, wait, what would that do? Yeah. Huh. I don't know. And you probably think and you think, well, it could do something, probably not much, but it might. Yeah. And so we, we do these calculations, but the problem with RF is nobody understands RF. Mm-hmm. And RF is really different. Like I, I started studying it. Oh, like I don't know, twenty five years ago, I started actually reviewing antennas. And and uh, Neil Turk, the guy who founded Turk uh, Antennas, was kind enough to kind of take me under his wing and and you know let me meet with his engineers. And they really kind of took me through a lot of it. But radio frequencies is is really different from audio frequency energy in the, in the way that you engineer with it. Oh, sure. So, but a lot of people don't understand it. And so so if someone says, oh. Uh, this blocks radio frequency energy. Um, a lot of audiophiles go, oh, yeah, that's important because there's a lot of that now. And, you yeah. know, and it's it's new technology, so therefore bad. And <laughs> so I wanted to look at, like, what I, I wanted to – what were you going to say? Go ahead. I, I was going to say – Jump the, right in. The, the, the thing that I would like to point out first off is let's just say that RF – energy is going to do something in your speakers. Something, anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Let's let's stop and consider signal to noise because look, we've talked before about Danny Ritchie at GR Research. He did this video yeah. several months back where he wanted to show you how good of an antenna cheap speaker wire was, and he hooked it up to uh, an FM receiver and he showed you, oh look, you know the signal strength meter is going up. It's pegging, man. Like this thing is a great antenna, and that's all well and good. But let's stop to consider the fact that, I mean, what is the signal strength of FM radio, if we're just going to look at FM radio, when it gets to an FM receiver? It's on the order of, what, milliwatts? Microwatts? You know what? Actually, let me just talk about something that I actually know about, right? Because I don't really know what the signal strength of an FM signal is once it reaches. But okay, what what is it? Okay, so FM is actually right in the middle of the TV band. And I review TV antennas for another publication, which means I, I measure their output of them. And typically, a good strong TV signal will be at minus 30 dBm. Now, zero dBm, which is the reference for that, is one milliwatt. Mm -hmm. So minus 30 dBm is a millionth of a watt. Mm -hmm. Now, the Wi-Fi signal going through your home... I, I, is, I know, have to say, of, I used to be like the local head of IT for one of the largest civil engineering firms in the world. Yeah. And I could tell you if I could get a negative 60 dBm signal at, at, a, at a device, that was strong Wi-Fi. Like you had all your bars pegged and that was as good a Wi-Fi signal as you could hope for yeah. realistically. So, And that is... Uh, let me... Hang on. Let me do the math. Let me do the math real how quick. Many, how many watts is that? Negative... How, how many... What... what what of a watt? Negative what fraction 60, of a watt is that? Well, negative sixty dBm would be zero point zero 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 one milliwatts. So, what is that? A billionth of a watt? It's a billionth of a watt. <laughs> now, how, yeah. Dennis? How how, how strong? <laughs> 
how strong <laughs> is the signal going from your amplifier to your speaker in it watts, approximately? Uh, you know, anywhere from, you know, five, six, seven, eight, 10, 15, 20. If you're playing it really loud and you've got this momentary burst of high SBLs, you you might be pulling 125, you know, that's just insane gotcha. loudness. But, you but know? typically it's, it's, it's like for typical listening, it's going to be a, a watt to 10 watts, maybe mm-hmm. depending on a lot of things. But, um, so you're looking at, this is tiny, tiny fractions of a watt mm-hmm. that are going in there, but. Here's the problem. RF signals are not audio signals. So what happens to the audio gear when the RF signal gets into it? Well, right, it depends on the, the big RF question. signal. You know, it depends on, you know, if it's, is it frequency modulated? Is it amplitude modulated? Actually, I wanted to point out, we have a soundboard now because we've started recording our podcast on Riverside FM. Mm-hmm. And I have a recording of, uh, let me just read what this is because a, a guy uploaded this to Wikimedia mm-hmm. and it is a recording of a Linksys wireless router causing EMI in his IOMagic sound assault hd 51 headphone amplifier what have you and we can play this and just let people hear what it. it sounds like so this is what that is what electromagnetic interference sounds like that is not some you know that's not some mysterious thing that these people are making out rf interference to be it's not uh, you know something weird happening to your sound stage or or you know so, the, the loss of depth or it, like you hear that and you go oh crap that there's something very wrong here you know well that sounds like the beginning of wall of voodoo's mexican radio which that would be a good thing <laughs> yeah. well but you know not if you're listening to the alma brothers band i think i would if i was listening to the alma brothers band it sounded like all of do. I would be, I would prefer that. I, I shouldn't. Nothing, nothing wrong with all the brothers. I'm not a, not a Southern rock guy. Yeah. But anyway, so 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 you're right. So at very low signal levels, you know, you're, if you're coming off of say a microphone, all right. If you're if you're in professional audio and you're at microphone type of levels, you're talking about a uh, a tiny, you know, a, a fraction of a millivolt coming off of these mic elements like in a in a condenser microphone like a friend of mine just just got a new hand-wired condenser microphone super you know uh, uh exotic kind of thing and he found it's tube, you know got a tube inside there and everything really super cool and he had problems with his wi-fi router going you know he could hear click 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 coming off of it but he had another tube mic uh which is not even an expensive one. It was a monoprice one and no problem. So I told him, well, you, there's a, there's a bad ground connection inside the microphone because that's a tiny, 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 tiny signal and radio frequency energy can interfere with that. Mm-hmm. That's a case where it does make a difference now, but once you get into audio levels, you know, into analog audio levels, mm-hmm. well, if you're going between an amp and a speaker or I'm sorry, a preamp and an amp, you're getting into levels that are more like a volt. Yeah. And you know, two volts is sort of the traditional maximum for those, although you, you get above and below. Um, so even that, I mean, there's a lot of audio cables that are not shielded. Kimber PBJ cables have been around for a long time, and they are generally revered, and they are not shielded, and they work just fine. So all this radio frequency energy is coming into those things, and nothing's happening. And then with speakers, of course, you're you're at such an infinitesimally small level relative to the main signal that the RF, even if it was a, an audio signal, couldn't do anything. But the RF is not an audio signal. Nope. So do you want to talk about what happens to that RF signal when it goes into your speaker wire, which granted, 
Danny's right. It does. Speaker wire can make a perfectly fine radio antenna. Um, but not if you're connecting it between an amp and a speaker like that. At, at that point, it stops well, being right. a good well, no, antenna. It, it, yeah. Well, it'll, well, the thing is, it'll still pick up the radio signal. But then what happens to the radio signal? So, so let's go to the speaker side first. Okay. So the radio signal mm -hmm. at, I don't know. Let's just say it's 88.1, or let's say it's 2 gigahertz, or who knows what, right? So that thing hits the speaker. So what happens at the speaker? Okay, so let's say you got a three-way speaker. So it's so let's say that radio frequency signal wants to go to the woofer, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the woofer's got a low-pass filter on it, so it's not going to get through the crossover, okay? Yeah. Now, what if it wants to go to the mid-range? Well, the mid-range also has a low-pass filter on it, so it's not going to be able to get into the mid-range driver because the mid-range is, you know, let's, let's just say the crossover on the mid-range is at 4 kilohertz, right? So the radio frequency signal is at 2 gigahertz. It's, it's, it can't get through there any more than I can bust through a brick wall with my bare hands. <laughs> and yeah. then you get to the tweeter. Well, the tweeter doesn't have a low-pass filter on it. However, the tweeter has a voice coil. If it's a normal cones and dome speaker, and even if it's a ribbon tweeter, et cetera, et cetera, those have voice coils too. And those voice coils are inductive. And inductors pass low frequencies and block high frequencies. Mm -hmm. So basically, the, the that RF signal gets into the, the speaker. And even if it were loud enough in level to do something, it's going to hit all those electrical components and it basically can't go anywhere. It can't do anything. It cannot affect the sound of the speaker any more than shining a flashlight on the speaker can affect the sound. Yeah. And it certainly doesn't understand the modulation of the signal. You know, of course not. No, it can't. Like, and <laughs> to your point, that's a modulated signal. It's not just like, oh, if you if you brought that down in frequency, it would make you know audio. No, 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 no. There's there's modulation schemes on this, and you have to go through that. So the speaker doesn't do that, mm -hmm. and also even if it doesn't even read it as noise, it doesn't get into the speaker. Okay, so let's say that the RF energy you know goes to the speaker and it's completely blocked, and so it says. Okay, well, I'm not getting anywhere with that. I'm going to head up towards the amplifier and see if I can mess with this amplifier. So what does it hit, Dennis, when the radio frequency signal hits the, in, the output of the amplifier? What happens? What is that output? Well, it has to contend with the output impedance of the amplifier. Right, which is, if it's a solid-state amp, it's, it's 0 0.0 something. It's like 0 0.05 or 0 0.01 ohms. So it's effectively a short circuit. Well, yeah. And so, so the radio frequency energy goes there to die. Now, if it's a tube amp, you have an output transformer on it that's very inductive, and, if, and it's going to see that inductor and go, oh, I can't get through that. And so... It's just sitting there. Nothing happens. It, it doesn't, the radio frequency energy can't go anywhere. And then I've heard people say, oh, well, it comes in, the radio frequency comes in on the ground and the ground is polluted and blah, blah, blah. And so, except your whole system is grounded. You know, your amplifier and your preamp and all your components are, ha have a big metal shield around them, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, somehow blocking RF on the speaker side or somehow grounding it out is not going to <laughs> magically get rid of all those other radio waves that are hitting all your other components. Right. And now this thing, also I have to say, this, this, this thing from Phonoacoustica is $5,700. It's a little tiny box. And a little box, it's filled with some kind of mystery meat inside there that, that the writer talks about. He says, you know, it rattles around in there when you shake it. <laughs> Yeah. I don't think any electrical engineer is going to go like something that rattles around is a good ground. Yeah. So 
but but there, there, we're going to be seeing a lot more of this stuff where where manufacturers are saying oh RF and, and and they're instilling the old fear uncertainty and doubt FUD thing in audiophiles and in this very review in positive feedback it says you can be sure that the RFI demon lurks and will show up again after the next advance goes in whatever that might be so whatever you do to fix your RF problems it's still going to find a way into your system and it's still going to mess everything up so all but you know if 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 any of these manufacturers and any of these reviewers would just say here's actual evidence that this has an audible effect show me the evidence i want to see blind tests where it 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 shows that people could tell a difference and that it had an effect on the audio instead of just saying this is like me saying you know oh i heard ghosts (laughs) yeah (laughs) and you're selling me a, a box, a little box that gets rid of the ghosts. It's the same thing as that. Yeah. I don't want to pick on this writer because, no, I, I mean, I he either. admits he's on a journey. He's learning. He's trying to figure it out. And and that's all well and good. But, you know, he talks about the fact that when he put this thing in his system, uh, suddenly the, the projected image of sound was no longer parallel from the sound stage. And it's like... I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, I don't what, either, are you, but- what are you talking about? And I'm sure this guy is probably just sort of aping what the manufacturer told him. And maybe even the manufacturer believes yeah. it. But like, what does you can't sit somebody down in front of a system and go, well, is that is that instrument projecting out parallel or is it more of a V shape? Like, what does that mean? And it's always the language used is always stuff like that, where it's kind of like, huh? yeah, I don't want to question the sincerity of this writer or the manufacturer. But yeah, I've been to a lot of audio shows. I've heard a lot of stories about how manufacturers develop product. This phonoacoustic is a cable manufacturer, and you really don't need any technical expertise to be a cable manufacturer. You know, certainly not for audios. If you're if it's for you know networks, yeah, sure. But for for audio applications, you know, anybody can come up with a line of cables, and quite frankly, anybody does. And so this guy probably thought it probably just occurred to him, like you know. Maybe speakers need grounding too, because mm-hmm. you know there's these ground boxes that come out that ground all the components of your system, and you know maybe there's something to that, like Nordos has one, and that that could solve certain problems. It could introduce more problems too, but it might help. But this is like, it, but he probably saw that. And he's like, well, maybe you need to ground your speakers too, and so he built some doohickey to ground his speakers, and he thought he heard a, a, an improvement, and so he messed around with all sorts of I don't know cryogenically frozen kitty litter or something inside this little box <laughs> that supposedly made for the superior ground and he doesn't know anything about grounding probably and doesn't really understand rf and yet he tried it and he convinced himself that he heard a difference or you know, he genuinely believed he heard a difference whatever and then he tells the writer and the writer you know the writer tries it he doesn't know anything about rf he doesn't know anything about grounding and so he plugs it into a system and anybody can hear anything yeah. you know you can put your motley crew sticker on the back of the speaker and claim that it transforms the sound but but at least with with that we know even even you know my mom who has no interest in audio would would I tell her that and she'd be like oh that's stupid <laughs> yeah. and but then w- but with radio frequency it's confusing people don't know about it and so a lot of people are jumping into this claiming it's a problem and 
it's a problem. It's it, this is Ghostbusters. Yeah, though there's one thing that <laughs> I, mean, I absolutely <laughs> agree with in this article is basically his introduction compares the crusade to eliminate uh, RF interference. He, he says that's very similar to you know, in days of old, men strode out to uh, slay dragons, and and I would agree there's an equivalence there because you are about and as much danger from dragons as you are from radio frequency interference in your speakers that's a that's a great analogy so i think we should we should end our 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 passionate discussion of radio frequency energy right there and move on to our next topic let's do it we'll see you on the other side Welcome back to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. And I'm Brent Butterworth. And in the second segment, we are going to be talking about an interesting story from Darko Audio um, about a new subwoofer introduced by Wilson Audio called the Loki. Um, what's interesting... And that's DarkoAudio.com, right? Uh, Darko.audio. 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 Yeah. Huh. Okay. So anyway, there's this new subwoofer. But you can also type in darkoaudio.com. Oh, I didn't realize that. Well, there you go. I learned something new today. Okay. <laughs> I'm learning things all the time from you, Brent. Um, anyway, this is a new, uh, it's a new, I think it's the smallest subwoofer that Wilson Audio has ever introduced. Uh, it runs a cool 9,000 pounds, or if you, you know, depending on the upgraded finishes, you can go as high as like 11,000 pounds. Uh, British pounds. English pounds, English not, pounds. Not, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're talking like UK cost. pounds. That's money. That's money. That's not what it weighs. That's big money. Yeah. Um, I thought for a second, like, wait, it weighs nine thousand pounds. <laughs> that wouldn't That's be the smallest subwoofer. subwoofer in Wilson's life. <laughs> it might not be their largest, but it wouldn't be their smallest. Um, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. um, interestingly, this subwoofer has has caused a bit of controversy on several audio forums. And I think the the one that we sort of noticed first, courtesy of Doug, our founder, uh, was this thread in Audio Science Review where someone very, very quickly pointed out that the plate amp in this subwoofer is remarkably similar to a plate amp uh, from Dayton Audio that sells for $330. <laughs> it is virtually mm. identical in every way except for some silk screening. I mean, even the software looks the same. And, you know, this despite the fact that uh, Wilson, you know, kind of claims there's a lot of proprietary stuff going on here. Interestingly enough, also uh, Diego Estan, uh, who does all of our measurements for Soundstage, uh, just happened to notice that the driver in it was remarkably similar to the Dayton Audio Reference Series 10-inch woofer. So, have we uncovered what here? What does this mean? Well, you know, you asked me a question in the last episode, Brent. You asked me if the Dayton Audio amplifier that was being used with that BASS system was good enough to deliver audiophile sound. And I think we have, <laughs> I think we've got our answer here. I think we here. have our answer. Yeah, we have our answer. Yeah, so basically, once you add up these components here, you're talking about 330 plus 190. So let's just say, you know what, a little over 500 bucks. 
Okay, but let's 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 not forget that usually with a good speaker, the cabinet is the most important or the most uh, expensive part to make. I was about to say, yeah, we have to account for the fact that the Loki is relying on a proprietary resonance eradicating X material box. Um, yeah, which is which is basically their their proprietary formulation of Corian, which is the stuff they make uh, countertops off. Yeah, with yeah, I think it's a little different which from Corian. A, a very good thing to make speakers from. What's yeah. that? I think it's a little different from Corian, it, but it's some kind of polymer. Yeah, it's composite. their own. It's their yeah. own. It's their own formulation. I don't. They don't say what it is. Again, it's it's sort of like the stuff in the in the grounding thing from Phonoacoustica. It's as soon as manufacturers start saying, "Oh, it's proprietary, blah blah, special." something secret, whatever, we're free to speculate as in any which way we choose as to what it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's my rule. (laughs) Yeah. But it's Corian, basically. Kind of, yeah. And Corian is an outstanding material to make speakers from because it is, you can tap on that stuff and it doesn't ring or anything. It's just, it's like almost like concrete. It's really dead. Yeah. And I guess when you get right down to it, the the sort of, you know, determining the value of something like that, you know, polymer uh, cabinet. Well, how much are people willing to pay for it? I mean, we don't really have an absolute metric for, you know, how much is that worth? Well, you know, they've got their proprietary formulation and they've got all of these beautiful automotive finishes, mm-hmm. which cost quite a pretty penny. But yeah, it's just, it's kind of interesting that, that a company of, of Wilson Audio's pedigree is certainly looks to be, we can't say that they are, but it certainly looks to be using straight up off the shelf Dayton audio components. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't mean that you, and and those are good components, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but look, let's face it. A lot of manufacturers source their components from other companies. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so this is not uncommon. I think that people expect more for given that it's nine, 9,000 bucks or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Given that it's like nine thousand bucks, and that it says Wilson Audio on the front, they probably expect a little bit more bespoke engineering, and a lot of people do. I mean, a lot of manufacturers um, will, you know, pretty much design almost all of their own drivers, or they do a custom version of the driver. You know, they go to Seos or somebody like that and get a driver made, and they'll say, "Oh, we want this driver that you have, but we want it made this way with this coil impedance or this." you know, this much compliance in the spider or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they can fine tune the response of the driver to get it exactly where they need it to be. Whereas this looks like a pretty much off the shelf woofer and a pretty much off the shelf amp. And again, perfectly fine components and probably a really good cabinet. But how much difference does that make in, I mean, do cabinets make a difference? Absolutely. You know, even the most, you know, sort of uh, objective uh, speaker experts I know, you know, think the cabinet vibration is a real problem and it's really critical to have a, a really, really strong cabinet that doesn't vibrate. Mm -hmm. So that's good. But the big question is, I just think that people are disappointed that, that, you know, they expect more from a high-end manufacturer and most high, I gotta say, you know, more or less most high-end manufacturers kind of deliver something more they, you know, they, they have some extra customization or some, some custom design components or who knows what, and you get something you get, you get in addition to possibly getting better performance, you get a better backstory. You get, you feel like you're spending your money. You know, I'd rather spend my money for something fancy and bespoke and handmade ish than something that's cranked out of some factory. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So what do you think? I mean, I'm looking over the specs on Wilson Audio's website, the specifications that they give. Yeah. I have to say, they don't give the specs that I would normally want to see in a subwoofer. I mean, they do give frequency response 20 to 250 uh, plus or minus one dB. That's yeah, but, pretty good. But yeah, but that's that. Yeah. However, that's mystery meat as oh, well because you know what? Never mind. It says, they, it says they, frequency response brackets amplifier. So that's not even. Uh, the actual which is, capabilities of this of the entire system, which is, yeah, bogus. Basically, I mean, you want the f the full system frequency response, and you want to know if they say it's twenty hertz to whatever to two hundred hertz or something. You want to know at what level. And that's the problem is like anybody can turn a subwoofer down really, really low and get measurable response to really low frequencies. Especially this particular amplifier is a really good amp and has DSP built into it, mm -hmm. so they can EQ it however they want to. So they can EQ it flat to twenty. And I've measured little dinky subs right that if you shove a mic right up against the woofer and turn it way down you can run a sweep on it and it's flat to 20 but as soon as you start trying to play it loud you get a lot of compression and and you start just there's no usable 20 hertz response this yeah. thing probably has it's, it's what a 10 inch driver i think it is a 10 inch driver a yeah pretty pretty decent cabinet and like a 500 watt amp i think something like that. it is a 500 so, watt amp yeah so you you can get you can get reasonable 20 hertz performance out of that. It's a pretty big cabinet. So and it's you can get reasonable 20 hertz they've, performance. They've got out a of that. slot port. Yeah. So, so you, yeah, look, they've tuned that. There's 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 nothing wrong with this as a product. I think people when people want to spend nine thousand bucks though, it's kind of like uh although, you know, people spend ten thousand bucks on a phono cartridge. Mm -hmm. And you know, which costs which <laughs> ships for nothing. And granted, it's a little tiny thing and it's hard to make them, but you know, you're 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 manufacturing cost is is ultimately low for materials and stuff where this thing's got some materials in it and you know so i i, I hate to to throw a lot of shade on wilson here for charging nine thousand bucks for a subwoofer with stock parts in it when so many other things i mean there's there's nine thousand dollar speaker cables out there oh, yeah there's you know which granted if you you know this sub and also this sub has tuning within it so it it's on on the on the DSP. So this sub probably sounds real good, and you know if you put it in your system, you probably like it as opposed to a lot of things that people sell for nine thousand bucks, where you put it in your system and you gotta you gotta persuade yourself that you hear a difference. Yeah, you'll hear a difference with this thing. I guarantee you. Yeah, they've got a lot of cool finishes too. <laughs> they the, the 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 premium finishes are all pearl, and they've got like this really cool silver ice pearl that i like and this blue orchid pearl that is really really cool looking i mean this let's let's call it what it is in a lot of ways the subwoofer is kind of a design statement you know oh yeah hey look if i think i really think that look i'm sure that you can get buy a, a subwoofer from svs or or sue or power sound audio or whatever that is uh, a tenth of the price of this thing and outperforms it mm -hmm. but you know um, uh, at least audiophiles might be more inclined to have a subwoofer, which like I said before, it's, this, this is going to make your system sound better. There's no question about yeah. it. Yeah. In a lot of ways, this kind of reminds me of the RSL Speedwoofer 10S, which is just a subwoofer that I adore. But that thing is yeah. kind of unfortunate looking, you know, <laughs> which I mean, who cares for it's the a, most it's part? A plain, but... It's a black box. It's just a plain black box yeah. with some relatively cheap you know, it's the fake, it's, you know, they put the fake black wood vinyl wrap on it mm -hmm. and it's just a black box. It's, it's, uh, but I've eaten dinners that cost more than that thing. Sure. And, but, but, but there are, 
but that thing just keeps winning. You know, I've, I've, I've done blind tests with that versus lots of other subwoofers, and it just keeps on winning tests. And that thing's been out for like six years now, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it just keeps on winning blind tests, and that just says an awful lot. And I'm sure this Wilson's probably better because it's similar componentry with uh, a little more kick in the amp, and it's got a DSP amp, which the, the Roger Sound doesn't. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's a little bigger and you know, it's got a little more space to work with and it's got a much better cabinet. You know, the, the Roger sound is just MDF. It's, I don't know, three quarter inch thick or something, if that. Yeah. And, but this thing is, has a awesome cabinet. So it probably sounds better, but you know, I'm saying, I'm sitting here saying, oh, it sounds better than a $400 cell. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it did well better. So I don't, not a really high hurdle. Yeah. I don't really think I have much more to say about this. I mean, do you do you have anything else to add? I'm, I'm kind of ready to wrap I this have up. One and move more on. thing to say. Let's say I it. can't wait to read the reviews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just feel so bad for the poor reviewer who hasn't read all this stuff and who who is so unfortunate as to not listen to our podcast. Well, I feel sorry for him just for that reason alone. But I feel sorry for him. There's going to be somebody who hasn't read all the scuttlebutt on this thing and gets it and just listen to him and says, "Oh my gosh, this is just the best sub forever." And it's 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 it, it's cheap at nine thousand dollars. <laughs> it's gonna happen, man. I just feel sorry for that person because they're just gonna get trashed. Okay, well, let's move on. Let's take a break, and uh, and we'll be right back. Okay. Okay, we're back with the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast with Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger. Good. You caught your cue. Good. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. We're getting better at this. I'm a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the last topic we're going to talk about is an article that you, Dennis Berger, wrote for Soundstage Access at soundstageaccess.com titled, How Much Difference Do DACs Really Make? So, Dennis, can you explain to us what a DAC is and how much difference they really make? <laughs> Well, a DAC is a digital to analog converter, which takes a digital signal, which let's face it, the most blase way to put it is consists of a string of ones and zeros and converts that into a variable voltage analog signal that can be amplified by your system and played by your speakers. So the question is, how much difference do they make? Well, (laughs) they make a huge difference, right? Like you can't play digital audio without them, right? Yeah. The question I'm really asking this is how much difference is there between one DAC and another? And should you buy an outboard DAC, a separate component, a separate box, that does nothing but convert digital to analog and then sends it to your preamp. So should you? The thing is, the DACs built into most active loudspeakers or preamps or source devices or integrated amps have just gotten to the point to where they're functionally perfect. What more could you want a DAC to do than take a digital signal and practically perfectly convert it into an analog signal. What else are you looking for? Why are people spending $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 on a DAC that maybe you can hear some difference between that and the DAC chip? Two words. Into- Two words, my friend. Mm-hmm. Two words. Inner detail. Inner detail. <laughs> and Brent, explain to me what inner detail means, please. 
if I know. Um, <laughs> as soon as I figure out what outer detail is, then I'll tell you what inner detail is. Because if there's inner detail, there has to be outer detail, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's an audiophile term that's, that's, that's come up, and it just it's glorifies – it's just detail. And it's just, it's just a, a way to kind of glorify and make it, it, it the whole thing more exciting. I guess that's fine. But a lot of people would contend that, okay, I hear – you know, I've heard these different DACs. I mean, I, when I see a lot of people – I mean, a lot. I mean, most of the people that go to audio shows probably, most reviewers would say, oh, well, I've heard these different DACs, and I hear a clear difference. So how, how do you answer them? We need to start being more honest about how much difference actually exists, because I, I think a lot of times, look, we are enthusiasts. We, we love this gear. We love this gear because it makes our music sound better. And a lot of times we get focused on minute differences and we need to be honest about that. We need to be clearer when we're talking about a difference that is so minute, it's almost imperceptible. Right. Yeah. So would I accuse those people of being dishonest? No, but I would say they, they, they are overselling the differences. You know, it's interesting, you know, John Heron, right? John used to be with wisdom audio. And now he's with Trinov. Snell. He was with Snell, was, dude. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he John wrote the first THX manual. <laughs> that, that is correct. That is correct. But yeah, he actually, after he read this article, he sent me an email going, thank you. Like, <laughs> thank, thank you. Finally, someone is saying it. And of course I'm not the first to say it, but you know, as, as John points out, like basically sort of any off the shelf DAC that you can buy for not a lot of money, as long as it is well implemented in your receiver or preamp or integrated amp or what have you, it's practically perfect these days. Maybe that wasn't true, you know, 30 years ago when the DACs built into those first CD players were just not that great. Maybe you can make an argument that you know, an outboard DAC made a big difference. You know, these days it's a hard sell, man. It's a real hard sell. Okay, so let me ask you this though. Mm -hmm. Let's let me, let me give you this application. What if I have an analog? Let's say I have a nice tube preamp and a tube amp, mm -hmm. and you know all analog inputs, mm -hmm. and I want to stream Cobuzz, yeah. the wonderful uh, you know full resolution digital streaming service. Mm -hmm. If I want to stream Cobuzz through my tube stuff that has only analog inputs. Well, I got to get it off of my computer probably. Yeah. Do I rely on the DAC built into the computer or do I get an external DAC? You know what? I think there's a good argument to be made for, yeah, go buy one of the iFi. Is it iFi audio or iffy audio? I'm never sure of how to pronounce that because I've never know. met them face to face, but they make I, so I always say iFi. Yeah. iFi. They make some really, really great outboard DACs that have really, really low noise, really, really low distortion, and they cost a few hundred bucks, right? So yeah, I use one for my headphone reviews. There's a really good argument to be made that you can go spend a, a few hundred bucks on one of those things and you've got as good a DAC as you could ever get, <laughs> you know, in terms of like, what, like real functional differences. So yeah, I mean, sure. Also, I, you know, last year I reviewed this, uh, Rotel A11 Tribute, uh, integrated amplifier. Mm-hmm completely analog except for the fact that it's got the, 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 there's a DAC chip in it but the DAC chip only functions with the Bluetooth antenna so any other digital sources you connect to it you gotta have a DAC 
that thing is an amazing sounding integrated amp for 700 bucks. Would I let the lack of digital connectivity keep me from buying that integrated amp? I would not. In that case, I would need a DAC. Yeah. Go get it. Go get a good iFi DAC or something like that. Or, or, you know, Cambridge makes some really amazing DACs too for not a lot of money. So do, do DACs make a difference? Yes, of course they do. But is there much difference between two competent DACs? Minuscule at best. So. Well, I, now I'll, I'll add one more caveat. What about people who want to play MQA or want to play uh, uh, DSD files or who want to play 32-bit, 784 kilobit per second uh, sampling rate downloads or whatever? On that last point, I would uh, raise my eyebrows a little, and maybe I would at MQA as well. But yeah, that's a point that I made in the article. If you're, if the DAC built into your component does not support a format that you want to listen to, if you own a lot of music in DST, and you know, I just reviewed the Rotel A12 Mark II. It doesn't do DSD natively. Mm -hmm. You want to add DSD to that with a little outboard, you know, competent outboard DAC for a few hundred bucks. Oh, absolutely. It, you know, but, oh, well, and also, you know, here's a point that I didn't think to make in the article. Like if you're into super, super high end gear, you know, super, super high end preamps and amps and things like that. A lot of times those boutique brands. Mm -hmm. They don't have digital connectivity. A lot of them are all analog, yeah. you know, and there's another case where, yeah, you need a good outboard DAC and you want one that has good signal to noise ratio and not a lot of distortion and isn't doing something really stupid with the PCM filters, which some of yeah. them do. I've seen DACs that, you know, their, their PCM filter, and we should explain, by the way, that you have to band limit the signal coming from a DAC or, or you get a lot of high frequency noise above the Nyquist frequency. Mm -hmm. um, so you, they have filters on them basically to roll off the high end. Well, I've heard some DAC filters that start rolling off at around i don't know like 10 kilohertz something like that and significantly so that's yeah, a little that's a little too soon yeah it's overly you know, cautious you don't want one that's doing something stupid like that but yeah i mean if you've got some super high-end gear and it's analog only of course you need an output deck but what i'm saying is you know and this article mind you is written in the context of the audience for which soundstage access is intended people looking to maximize their price to performance ratio and new people just getting into this should either of those people go spend $5,000 on an outboard DAC no. when almost certainly their room is going to demolish any differences between them? No, that take that money, go spend that money on, or way less money than that, on some good cheap acoustical treatments for your room. And that's going to make a monumentally yeah. more difference. Okay, so I, I think what you're talking about actually though, although, you know, People have been talking about how much of a difference DACs make for a long time, 25 years or something. Mm. Um, I think what you, your sentiment is becoming more of a trend, though, because I I was listening to the Darko Audio podcast, and we were talking about Darko before. It's D-A-R-K-O dot audio, and it's run by a guy named John Darko. Mm -hmm. And so he was on his podcast with a guy named uh, Michael Lavorna, who has uh, used to edit AudioStream, which is a site about you know dax and computer audio and darko you know his website used to be called digital audio review so these are dac guys mm -hmm. and on their podcast this is about a month ago they were talking about how you know john was saying you know 
I don't think I'm going to be devoting as much attention to DAX anymore because they just don't make that much of a difference. And they make a difference, but you know, compared to what the difference you get with speakers or room treatment or, or even amplifiers or whatever, it's really pretty small and almost all of them are really good now. Mm-hmm. So I think People, you know, it's it's hard. The, the, the high-end audio industry has a very, very hard time admitting that something has become a commodity. Yeah. Like, they just don't seem to be able to admit that. But I think that a lot of people are going to start looking at this in, in much the same way that the camera industry used to talk a lot about resolution, and now they don't because it started to not make a big difference anymore. And yeah. I think DACs are kind of getting to that point where, yeah, people will still come out with uh, sort of esoteric designs that have, you know, the employee, you know, DAC chips from 30 years ago or God knows what. But um, by and large, I think a lot of the industry is coming around to your point of view. Well, I mean, you, you call this a trend, but I mean, we have to acknowledge that you, Brent Butterworth, are a trendsetter here because <laughs> looking at it, another reader sent me a link to an article that you wrote in November of 2017 about blind testing DACs. And, Who um, published that? <laughs> soundstage experience. Uh, so publish anything. we're keeping it in the family here. I know. Um, I just want to read one one little snippet here from okay. this article from 2017. You're talking about the differences. One panelist typified the difference between the best and the worst as being maybe one half of 1%. Another wondered aloud, why would anyone care about this? I think that sums it up pretty well, man. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And, and that was the that, difference that... between the best DAC and the worst DAC I've heard in recent years is I'd say that's accurate, maybe half a percent. Yeah. So. Well, and that was, I have to point out, that was a really carefully constructed blind test that took us about two days to do. And I think we had 10 DACs and we had, we could run four DACs at any one time and you had a switcher. And so you identified them by just the switcher. And this is like the, you know, like 300, you know, 150 to $300 ish headphone amp DAC things. And you know, you could switch between them and the levels were well matched, which, you know, this stuff never happens in audio reviews. Like, find me a DAC shootout where anybody did a blind test and they level matched it. I mean, it just doesn't exist and it should exist. Mm-hmm. You know, and three people who are very experienced at this stuff, uh, two of whom have music production degrees, and then there's me and I do music production. And all of us were just like, yeah, there's just not too much to care about here. And... I really, I wish that more people would have that experience. I think the flaw in your methodology is you, you didn't what? have any of those $6,000 non-oversampling DACs in your test. That would have made a difference, Brent. Well, that <laughs> I should have, have had one. You would have heard a lot of high frequency noise. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is it could have served as what they call a low anchor. <laughs> In a blind in a blind test, a lot of times you have low anchors and high anchors, and a low anchor will be something that you know everything else will be better than, and a high anchor will be something that you 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 expect that everything else will be not as good as. So that helps you put that helps the listeners put everything in perspective. Yeah, and so some of these wacky DACs are actually might really have audible effects, and so they could be a low anchor or maybe hey I don't know maybe they really work. I imagine they don't, but hey man. Show me a blind test where where one of these non oversampling DACs actually sounded better, and then I'll I'll buy into it. Yeah, yeah. That's all I ask. Is that so much to ask? That's not too much to ask, Brent. I think on that gentle note, perhaps we should we should add we should end this podcast on a gentle note for a change. (laughs) 
We should. Let them down easy. So, uh, we want to do some credits? Yeah, let's do some credits. Who are you? I am Dennis Berger, and you are? I'm Brent Butterworth. What did you do? I think you would say that I am the uh, engineer and also the editor. And you know what? I might uh, I might try my hand at mixing and mastering this time with your guidance, of course. Yeah, I'm not really doing anything on this one other than talking. Uh, but who did the music? Oh, I did the music for this. That's right. Yeah, that's big. And along with my friends, uh, Ron Seiger and uh, Dan Gonda and uh, Terry Landry. Yeah, and this is a production of the Soundstage Network, which you can find at soundstage.com so uh yeah i guess that's it i guess we'll see you uh see you in two weeks cool awesome looking forward to it (laughs) okay all right bye bye